his teachings were in essence spiritual. And he said, all illness begins in the soul and ends in the body. Mm. All illness begins in the soul and ends in the body. And he also said, how does this happen? He said, illness develops because uh, uh, bought through by the very small sins we, we commit against nature every day over long periods of time until finally they accumulate and they suddenly break out in an illness in the body. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by psychotherapist and author Edward Tech to talk about his book, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage. Ed discusses the Greek Asclepian healing tradition, illness as soul illness, post-traumatic soul distress, the healing power of pilgrimage, and the transformational power of ritual and sacred theater. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Edward Tech, PhD, is a transformational psychotherapist, international pilgrimage guide, educator, author, and poet. Since 1995, Ed has led 23 pilgrimages to Greece and 19 to Vietnam. Ed considers the ancient practice of pilgrimage as one of the most effective healing and educational tools. A specialist in archetypal psychotherapy and the healing of violent trauma, he is the author of four nonfiction books, including The Practice of Dream Healing and War in the Soul. He joins me today to discuss his latest publication, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage. Ed, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you very much, Nick. It's great to be with you. I'm honored to share this conversation. Yes, well, thank you very much. I have very much been looking forward to speaking with you. I told you beforehand that I had read your book, The uh, Practice of Dream Healing, a few years ago. So I was really looking forward to the new book, Soul Medicine, which I also enjoyed quite a bit. I also personally have an abiding interest in dreams, dream work, and depth psychology. So this is right up my alley. So there were a couple of places where I thought that we would begin. And I think that maybe what immediately comes to mind is the question of pilgrimage and how pilgrimage can help us heal. Good place to start. Thank you. Let's affirm together that pilgrimage, human humanity has been on pilgrimage, well, since we came out of the jungle. Pilgrimage, in essence, is traveling long distances and encountering great ordeals in order to achieve things necessary for our physical, spiritual, emotional well-being for us and for our community. And in particular, we both have strong interest and uh, advocacy for our spiritual growth and altered states and transformed states of consciousness, pilgrimage has been used from ancient times to the present to achieve deeper spiritual immersion and connection. And there are many established forms of pilgrimage, like, for example, 
the Hajj, where Muslim mm -hmm. people go to the Holy Land and they are invited or even more almost required to do it at least once in their lifetime. And that's a, a modern example of ancient pilgrimage that is still used by millions of people around the world. Many other examples of pilgrimage, of course, are the Canter Canterbury Tales is pilgrimage. Pilgrim's progress, we're talking about being pilgrim, <laughs> obviously. So the, the key of pilgrimage is that we have some urgent need, especially a spiritual need that we have not been able to satisfy in our ordinary life. So we leave the ordinary and we travel long distances internally and externally to arrive in sacred, a sacred place and conditions through which we can do really deep inner work and achieve spiritual connection and transformation. All that being said, I'll build on this. As you shared with our friends, our audience, I lead pilgrimages to both Greece and to Vietnam. Another advantage of pilgrimage is that we go to a place very different than our usual place. We get out of, really out of our comfort zone, out of our own communities and cultures and travel to a place where we can practice a deep immersion in that culture or in that spiritual path and practice such that we are exposing ourselves to, well, spiritual technology, to that which will change us, will penetrate our souls and change us from within. So it's not just travel. Travel is good, but it's not the same as pilgrimage. Right. Pilgrimage is really our, we have spiritual and transformational intentions, and we go to a place where we can really immerse, and the quality, the soul of the place will act on us, penetrate us, and bring healing and growth. Okay, wonderful. I want to ask this question because at one point in the book, you mention homesickness and you said that, um, uh, well, you quote one healer who said that all sickness is homesickness. And you wrote that we are all homesick today and that we are alienated from ourselves. And when I read that, I was thinking how we are in exile from our souls. Yes. And with what you were just saying, what came to mind, and I hope this is fair, is that we have to leave home to return home. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We, especially in the modern world and in our modern American society, though many, many people are aching for spiritual presence and practice and looking for it, we actually have very, very little living spirituality that really penetrates us and fulfills the hungers for our soul. And the bottom line what most people are striving for most of the time are not soulful conditions, but physical, um, real world conditions. And in our culture, unfortunately, mostly money, the bottom line. Mm. And we are bombarded with false messages from technology, advertising, the, the PR world that a car is named the Odyssey or a, your car is named Soul, <laughs> right? right? Or yeah, if you want to live the good life, eat this junk food. Mm. So even the ancient high values of truth, goodness, beauty, soulfulness have been co-opted by 
the by the housing industry, and people are being misled as if these material things are going to satisfy our souls. They don't, they won't. Jesus told us this, Socrates told us this, Confucius, Lao Tzu. These are ancient lessons, and we are tragically lost, very lost, and maybe even more so. So the depth of spiritual hunger in our culture and our times is extreme, even more so because of the world climate crisis and, and war crises that we're in. So people feel even more threatened, more disconnected, more existentially insecure, mm -hmm. and hunger even more for the spiritual work. All of, so, all right, all that being said, we have the English word nostalgia, mm. and it comes from the ancient Greek. Algia means pain. So, for example, neuralgia is nerve pain. We have that word. And we translate nostalgia as homesickness, as I just want to get back to my home, my family, my familiar community. That's not what the word originally meant. Nostos in ancient Greek meant the soul's journey home to its true home. So the Odyssey by Homer of Odysseus traveling home from the Trojan War, that's Nostos, is that he was trying to get home, but with his soul and his spirit and to his homeland where he's deeply connected. It's not just that I miss, miss my wife and kids and I've been away too long, which we all understand and feel, <laughs> but it's where I've been transformed by my experience from war and my ordeals in war and getting home. And I need to co come to my soul's true home, to that inner spiritual Ithaca that we all seek. So nostalgia is the pain of the, our souls when we're trying to find our way home and can't find where we really belong, really connected, and where the culture and the people feed and enrich our spiritual lives. Right. Yeah. And I think it's absolutely correct that we live in a world that does not feed our souls. I think that you quoted a friend of yours, Constantinos, uh, that he said that America gives you everything but stills your soul, which I thought, yep, yep, that's right. That's right. So let me ask, in the new book, Soul Medicine, the focus is on Greece and making the pilgrimages to Greece. Yes. Why Greece? Why Greece? Well, for a number of reasons, both personal and collective. So a few of the collective reasons, the Greek tradition and the Hebraic tradition are the two root cultures of Western civilization. So as a dear friend of mine who is neither Greek nor Jewish said, we're all Greeks, we're all Jews, we're all pagans, we're all Christians, because it's built, it's built into our roots and we all grow from that tradition. So one of the reasons is to immerse in one of the roots of Western civilization that feed us all. Secondly, as you shared with our audience, I'm a psychotherapist. And so though I love the humanities and the arts and spirituality, and I use them profoundly, and they're necessary to, be, to do good psychotherapy. In fact, Carl Jung and Rollo May both said, the best education for a future psychologist is not to study psychology, but to immerse ourselves 
in the world's spiritual and artistic traditions and get as much of the humanities as we can because that's where people live and that's what comes out of us in our dreams and on our challenges. And so it's really the spiritual and art and humanistic practices that prepare us to be able to travel in the inner world. And Greece is so full of that, <clears throat> such a rich tradition with their mythology, which almost everybody loves, even if they don't know anything else about Greece. <laughs> Greek mythology is fun yeah. as well as wise, but the myth, uh, it's, it's the roots in mythology, philosophy, politics, this is where democracy was invented, their spiritual traditions, and their healing arts all come from Greece. So going into that piece of why Greece, as a psychotherapist, I recognize and study that medicine and psychology in the Western world was, as we know it today, was first developed and invented in Greece and turned from a spiritual practice into a scientific practice. Hmm. So I'm also going into the origins of medicine and psychology because as we can affirm today, those disciplines have lost their way also. Hmm. They're just treating our symptoms and our stress disorders and throwing massive medications at symptomatology without addressing in the individual or the collective without addressing the causes. And the Greek tradition teaches us, no, don't look at the consequences, though just the symptoms, but the causes. Plato even said, what, 2,000 years ago, most people mistake consequences for the condition and forget to go through the consequences to seek the cause of the condition. So we are also, we're, we're living in a, a health world mostly dominated by quick fix of the symptoms so people can just get back into their ordinary functioning. And that doesn't work, that doesn't heal. When we repress the symptoms or erase one symptom, our distress is going to come out in other symptoms until we really address the core issue. So the Greek tradition teaches this as well. And on a personal level, though I have no Greek blood and no Greek family, I discovered the tradition in a magical way that invited and initiated me before I even knew what I was getting into. So the brief story, it's a wonderful story for me, but we won't take much time. But on my 10th birthday, I grew up in New York City. On my 10th birthday, I walked right after school to our regional public library, where on your 10th birthday, you could get the adult library card. So I was so excited, my 10th birthday, I'm going to take my first adult book home. I've been up there a lot, but not allowed to take a book home. I was walking between the stacks, which were floor to ceiling. I can remember exactly where I stood. And I was looking up at the stacks. I couldn't reach a lot of the books. And somehow, either it fell or it was pushed, but a book fell off a tumbled off a top shelf and landed in my hands. It was a big leather-bound edition of the Iliad. Hmm. And I looked at it. It had great, great pictures, by the way. Wonderful <laughs> pen and ink drawings. I can even see them. But I looked at the book and I said, I don't know who you are or what put you into my hands, but we're going home together. So at 10 years old, I devoured the Iliad and I fell in love with the Greek tradition. And so I've literally been studying it since 10, since what, age 11 or 12. 
So it's been a lifelong passion. And I, I, of course, went to Greece, not only in study, but I went there several times before I ever began leading pilgrimage there. And to share with our audience, I had quite a number of peak experiences of some of my most significant spiritual breakthroughs have happened in Greece for me that really have changed my life and healed deep wounds, awakened me to a much more complex and sophisticated adult identity and taught me how to use these traditions such that uh, I now lead pilgrimages for others and facilitate such non-normative, mind-expanding experiences. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story. I really enjoyed that when I read it in the book as well. And, you know, I just wanted to say from my own personal experience, having majored in philosophy, it, I've always been drawn to the Greeks. And the very first philosophy course I took as a under uh, at a community college, I did not do well because the class moved on. It was a history of philosophy and I wanted to stay with the Greeks. And it seems like at some point, you know, once you get to like modern philosophy, it loses that emphasis on the soul you know, and, and, and I think that that was what really bothered me that it was just missing the point of what philosophy originally was supposed to be, you know, the, the other thing, which you were just talking about that has become very, very obvious to me is the, the, the connection between what's going on in our souls and our bodies. And how illness is often a reflection of a soul illness, I suppose, might yes. be the way to explain that. Can you give an example of how that might work? Sure. I'd like to comment on both of your delicious sure. comments. Sure. First, regarding philosophy, I'm with you and I had similar experiences in undergrad. Mm. I, I took a course on Homer mm. and I... Remember the final exam. How many ships did Odysseus sail from Ithaca to Troy? How many men did Agamemnon order into the field? Nothing about the Odyssey, the Iliad, nothing about the soulful meaning of these, nothing helping us understand the symbolic dimensions of these amazing stories. So I too was turned off by academic classical and and philosophical teaching. And that's not the way it was used in the ancient world. So there too, you're absolutely right. Let's all remember that Socrates and his followers, the the sophists and the rhetoricians, they were all in the marketplace. They were not removed from the people, but they were in the marketplace talking and teaching and debating and inspiring or the young people are making the old people angry. It doesn't matter. The point was, it was a vital interaction in the marketplace where common people were, and philosophy is supposed to be that. Mm. Philosophia, friend of wisdom. Mm. And Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, it's not an abstract esoteric removed from everyday life. Sophia as wisdom is soulful wisdom to live 
good lives every day with each other. So philosophy is supposed to be out here between you and I, not removed and highly conceptualized and abstracted so that it becomes a specialized discipline that very few people are attracted to. So we're also trying to get back to the origins of philosophy and restore it. So that, that's to your first important comment. And then to the second one about how is the soul the source of our illness and distress? Hippocrates, whom we all understand to be called so-called father of scientific medicine. Hippocrates, first of all, he was the son and the grandson of Asclepian priests. And so he was, and for our listeners who don't know the tradition, Asclepius was the god of healing. He was actually the first psychiatrist and psychotherapist. Apollo was the god of medicine. Asclepius' son took the medical theory of his father and applied it and used it. So we can talk about this, but in brief, there are over 300 holistic healing sanctuaries all over the ancient world that practiced Asclepian healing for 2000 years before the tradition was crushed. Hippocrates was born in that tradition. He was raised in it by his, his elders and he didn't practice it himself, but he turned the ancient spiritual healing tradition into, into a scientific medicine. And though he didn't practice dream healing, Hippocrates still had the original spiritual understanding of medicine and illness. And what we would understand him today as a natural path. He said, nature, all is nature and all is divine. He said, the, the best healing forces there are are the natural healing forces within us. He said, make your food your medicine and your medicine your food. And if you can do that, leave the chemists drugs in, 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 the, in the chemical, in the chemistry jar. Don't take them, don't use them. So all that is naturopathic healing and that's wonderful. And many people are turning to that today, of course. Beyond that, though he didn't focus on the spiritual, his teachings were in essence spiritual. And he said, all illness begins in the soul and ends in the body. All illness begins in the soul and ends in the body. And he also said, how does this happen? He said, illness develops because bought through by the very small sins we, we commit against nature every day over long periods of time until finally they accumulate and they suddenly break out in an illness in the body. Now, that's easy to understand in some ways, like if we're struggling with alcoholism, hmm. that a drink or two tonight or night is not going to hurt me. And another tomorrow night's not going to hurt me. And again and again and again, until for some people, they're captivated by the substance and we call alcohol spirits. People are looking for spirit, and so they turn to spirits and get to that altered state of consciousness. But those kind of spirits captivate and possess us and make us ill. And so over time, a person can become, they may have the genes that make them more susceptible, they may not. But over time, enough of those small daily sins can erupt in alcoholism and we can be possessed. That's an easy one to understand, It ha but it happens in every aspect of our being 
when we ignore our anger or our stress or our grief, we know we don't really cleanse ourselves, when we don't do our inner work, these matters accumulate and they're emotional and spiritual matters. And eventually they will translate into what we finally end up calling a disease. Hmm. You mentioned uh, that I lead pilgrimage to Vietnam and that's true. And I've specialized in working, not exclusively, but especially with uh, military people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I, and we go to Vietnam to reconcile and heal with the Vietnamese and immerse in their spiritual tr condition, traditions. Likewise there, tragically, what our warriors experience in Vietnam, not in Vietnam, in any war, gets stuffed inside them hmm. and really accumulates. And they do feel like they participated in crimes against humanity even if they feel like their actions were necessary and justified, it still hurts to kill and it should hurt to kill. And people usually can't think about it when they're right in this, the situation, but afterwards when they reflect on it, it changes and their real feelings about it come out, but they've accumulated those these feelings over time. Tragically, our country and our VA system only treats symptoms and tells people to get on with life and doesn't stop and listen to them and give warriors everything that they need in order to come home well. So the sins that they committed, we're calling them sins. I'm not judging mm -hmm. them. Right. The wrongs they committed and judged to be sinful themselves and the wrongs of our society telling them, carry it yourself. I'm not going to help you. I don't want to hear the stories. You're alone with this. These are all really wrong and cause more harm. So I translate that acronym PTSD as post-traumatic soul distress. Hmm. It's not just a stress disorder. The, so, the symptoms are our souls screaming our, our anguish when people aren't listening or when we don't even know what words to give it. So soul distress and also post-traumatic social disorder because hmm. it's not the victim's or the survivor's fault, it's the social context of bringing them home and neglecting them, betraying them, abusing them, abandoning them, just throwing medications at their symptoms and that doesn't heal. And so the wound of, the neglectful wound of the homecoming is often even worse than the traumatic events in combat. And that accumulates over time until we finally get this complex that we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. It's also not new. We know that PTSD has been around since ancient times. The Greeks knew of it. The Romans knew of it. Our Native American people know of it. African biblical tradition, it's all there. Only it wasn't chronic the way it is here and now in the modern world because there were communal ways for everybody to welcome home their warriors home and heal them. And there was long complex healing practices, many of which we do in Greece, by the way, because I also lead warrior journeys to Greece. So I'll be leaving actually in two weeks to take a group of veterans to Greece to study and practice their ancient warrior tradition and the ways that the ancients healed their warriorhood. So this is to a long answer to say that whether it's taking too many drinks at night over too long a period of time or having 
significant life experiences that we ignore and accumulate the, imp the traumatic impact and emotions. So eventually it becomes what we then define as an illness or disease. It is betraying the soul, not giving the soul, the spirit, what it needs, not practicing spiritual healing through these most demanding and comprehensive wounds that we have that really are of the soul, but instead patching the person together on the body level and mostly with medications and sending them on their way. And it doesn't work. Right, right. Yeah, I wanted to thank you actually for the work that you do with the veterans. My dad was career army and I know that he did two tours in Vietnam and my dad would never talk about it. He never talked about it. So that was always really repressed. And as you were speaking, what was coming to mind is my dad developed an issue after he left the military, he ended up teaching junior ROTC for about 19 years and probably about nine years into that, he started developing an issue that it took them a very long time to actually diagnose. But essentially what they said was that his pericardium, you know, the sac around his heart had mm -hmm. calcified. Mm -hmm. And his heart wasn't able to beat properly. So he kept filling up with fluids. And so it was like congestive heart failure. And they also would say, well, it's pneumonia. And as you were thinking, or excuse me, as you were speaking, I was thinking it my dad had a heart problem because he, there was trauma there and, yes. you know, the heart is so symbolic of how we relate to the world and that there was that symbolic truth there that he never was able to process. I don't think. Yeah. First of all, I, I give you and him and your family, my respect and honor and compassion for what you've all gone through and affirm with you that these wounds become transgenerational. Yeah. What was passed on? We won't go into that now, my yeah. friend, but what was passed on to you and to the rest of the family from your father's illness, but more than that, from your father's frozen, closed up mm -hmm. um, way to survive and cope yeah. with his, his stories. So all that being said, let's look a little more deeply. His heart, around his heart, the sack calcified. Yeah. What a symbol. Mm -hmm. My heart is full of so much pain and anguish from the war that I've never shared, I've never talked about, I've never revealed, and I'm carrying this in secret, and I'm growing a hard shell around mm -hmm. my hurting heart to keep it all in. Mm -hmm. So your poor dad was very effective in growing an illness that shielded his, his heart and kept all of his stories in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, precisely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's I, what I, happens in a perfect example yeah. of how does the soul grow our physical ailments? Yeah. Well, so, I want to just say this in connection to the generational aspect to this. I wasn't actually around my dad that much growing up. I was essentially raised by my mother's parents. My brother, though, was with my parents the whole time. 
And when my dad, shortly before he died, they wanted to do an operation to remove the pericardium to allow his heart to beat properly. And my brother got sick at the same time. And he had to have the exact same operation. And at the time, and they couldn't figure out, the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. And he had the same surgeon that my dad had. And the surgeon's like, this is not a genetic, you know, illness. And what they determined was that my brother had picked up some kind of virus and that this was how it was manifesting. And I remember telling my sister-in-law, like, this is, there's a psychosomatic, and I don't know if that was the best way of saying this, not that it was all in his head, but that it is manifesting this way specifically because of our father. So it was abundantly clear to me that it w- there was a connection there between the family, my dad's story and my brother's relationship with him. Sure. We have the word psychosomatic for conditions that are, might be in our head. Mm-hmm. We also have the reverse word somatopsychic that we don't mm-hmm. use much. And that's what happened when mm-hmm. our head grows the somatic conditions. Yeah. It's not in our head, but our head knew this and adapted to our condition that way Mm. and the other so that comes to mind for your story your family story the other thing is quote from the bible Mm. the sins of the parents shall be visited upon the children unto the third and fourth generations yeah that's yeah this is how it happens and yes the the unspoken energies and emotions and the pressure from the untold stories impact us make us uh, develop our disorders and illnesses and they are radi- they radiate out and they're passed on to the family and the people around us yeah 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 for sure for sure so um moving away from my family yes. i wanted i wanted to ask you about dream incubation and you've already mentioned asclepius in the asclepian healing tradition and i know that it's deeply connected to dream incubation so i was wondering if you could explain what dream incubation is and this is asclepian tradition for my audience who may not be all that familiar with it sure it isn't a familiar concept in our culture People are very interested in dreams. And here's another way the soul is being crushed. You and I and millions of people are really interested in and curious about dreams. And there are lots of books out about dreams. And a lot of them are dictionaries. This is what an apple means. Mm. It doesn't work that way, but people are curious and hungry. That's okay. So, but in contrast, the medical profession doesn't pay any attention to dreams that it's not part of our medical history and presentation. And unfortunately now psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, counselors hardly ever talk about dreams. They don't know how to work with them. And so even dreaming itself is being shoved out of our consciousness by the professional world. When in fact, as Freud said, it's the Royal road to the unconscious or Jung, it reveals the deepest secrets and recesses of our souls. And so that being said, we want to bring serious consideration and use of dreaming back into our culture. And that's some of the work I'm trying to do. 
So dream incubation was, and we don't have, we don't usually have that term in English. It really is the translation of the Greek word for the practice that was the primary practice in the Asclepian healing sanctuaries. Okay, so we all have dreams all the time. Everyday dreams, dreams about our childhood, dreams of our unconscious, dreams about our, our conflicts, all kinds of symbolic dreams. And they're wonderful and important to work with and always give us messages. However, Carl Jung differentiated between what he called little dreams and big dreams. He got the name big dream from the lab, tribe of Labrador Indians who taught him that sometimes the spirits come through in our dreams. They're a more rare dream, but spirits or gods or archetypal presence comes through in dreams. And when it does, we can be enlightened and transformed or healed from the dream. The ancient Greece knew this, practiced it, institutionalized it, and this is actually the beginning of a psychology and medicine in the Western world. So Asclepius was the god of healing. He came from the mountains of Northern Greece of, of Thessaly. And the testimonies we have from this tradition begin in about 14, 1500 BC. So we're talking 3,500 years ago, but they were already fully developed. So this tradition was strong and growing in those mountains and, and you know, using earth medicine. Originally, people used to go into the mountains and into caves. And it's analogous to Native American vision questing, where you go into the wilderness. And if you're alone from one to four days on a mountaintop, fasting and praying and crying to the spirit world to bring some kind of vision. In a similar way, people in ancient Greece earlier on went into the mountains, but later on went to dream temples, where several steps here. The temples, these healing sanctuaries became holistic healing sanctuaries. And in fact, they model our holistic, are the models for our holistic sanctuaries today, like uh, Esalen Institute hmm. on your coast or Omega Institute, where you can go and choose from, or, or Institute, you can go and you choose through a lot of different healing modalities that are all available there. Ancient Greece had more than 300 of these holistic sanctuaries with some similarities and many differences. Similarity was there was a whole bevy of holistic practices. So they had acupressure, they had therapeutic touch, they had energy healing, color therapy, hydrotherapy, nutrition, gymnastics, astrology readings, theater, ancient tragedy performances, psych psychotherapy because psychotherapy originated in this tradition. So they had all of these holistic practices. Different from our modern sanctuaries is that you got them all. You didn't go for one or two intensive workshops for a weekend or a week and then leave. You went into the sanctuary, you received all of the modalities. The sanctuaries were free. They had the perfect universal health care. Everybody got it and it was free for everybody. And even though Greece had some oppression going on, not, not in the sanctuaries, women as well as men were welcome and used them, slaves as well as emperors. And you gifted the sanctuary for your healing afterwards. You weren't charged and you weren't told what to pay. So if a slave only could give an apple, 
that was adequate because in the eyes of God or the gods, that's a lot. You're giving what you have. The pe people stayed in the sanctuary until something happened. They had a dream or a vision or some sign that told them now it's time for that key practice dream incubation. And dream incubation occurred this way, back to the, the vision quest. Now you, you've got the holistic stability and health and strength. Now you're ready to go to try to meet God, the gods. And so at a certain point when you felt called or beckoned, people went into a separate building. It was called an abaton, which translates as uh, the place never to be entered by the unbidden the place never to be trespassed. So in the dream tradition, it was the holy of holies. This is the place you go. The only reason you go is because you're on a quest to get big dreams in the Jungian sense, some divine dreams that bring the gods, the goddesses to you, that bring the archetypal forces and, and teachings to you that will heal you in the dream or tell you how to heal yourself. So this tradition lasted for about 2000 years that we know of from 1500 BC to 500 AD or CE when it was uh, suppressed and, and wiped out by early Christianity, but 2000 years and medicine and psychology as we know it today evolved from this. And our words in psychology today come from this. So psychology, we translate as the study of the mind. You know this, but mm -hmm. our audience needs to. Psyche means soul, not mind. Mm -hmm. Logi comes from logos. It doesn't mean to study. It means you should define mm -hmm. logos for us. It's impossible. The right. order and meaning of the cosmos. Yeah. So psychology is the order and meaning of the soul. And that's what we want, want and need to get back to. Psychotherapy, therapeia means to serve or to attend. So a psychotherapist is literally, was literally a servant of the soul. And yatros means doctor. So a psychiatrist back then was not a medication dispenser as they've tragically become today, but a soul doctor. And they really listened to the soul. Now people received dreams. We have, oh, well over a thousand ancient testimonies of people who went through this practice and their testimonies were recorded, carved on, onto statuary, onto marble friezes. The temples or the sanctuaries were covered with these testimonies in order to set people's psyches on this healing path. When you come here, this is the imagery we're working with. This is the way the gods and the healing powers will come to you. So, Thousands of, of, dream, of dream incubations where people had big dreams and experienced either an immediate healing or were told how to heal themselves. So prescriptive heal, uh, dreams or healing dreams. Examples were the warriors loved the sanctuaries. And even if they were attacking a city and destroying much in the city, if they had an Asclepian sanctuary, they protected it and saved it and used it for their own healing. So a warrior who had been wounded with an arrow embedded in their shoulder, for example, and it was deep in them and it was inoperable. They would go into the sanctuary. They would go through this process. 
in an incubation. Uh, this is a true story. So I'm not, I'm not fantasizing now. I'm reporting some of the testimonies. In an incubation, the warrior had a dream in which the God of healing, Asclepius, came to him and in the dream performed the surgery. But it never happened physically. It just happened in the dream. But when the, the, the warrior woke up, the arrow had been spontaneously expelled from his body. One example. There are many, many stories like that I could tell, but this stuff really happened. And as we said, thousands of times, some of the sanctuaries had both medical and sacred medicine working in tandem. Many of the sanctuaries didn't have any meta, meta, physiological medicine. No medical instruments had been found there. This was purely dream work. And uh, though Hippocrates did not practice it, he studied it scientifically and translated it. The second most famous physician of ancient times is Galen. Many of us have heard of him. Like he was the personal physician to Marcus Aurelius. He was a physician of gladiators. Galen was an Asclepian priest also. Oh. Galen had a dream when he was a teenager that Asclepius came to him and told him to become a doctor. Galen assigned dream incubation to some of his patients. When Galen had a difficult case himself, he would go into the sanctuary and incubate for his patient and testifies that he received a lot of guidance from Asclepius on how to he uh, treat and heal patients that he didn't know how to do it. And it worked, including this is a really difficult surgery on somebody's hand, the most complicated part of the body. I don't know how to do this. And in a dream, Asclepius came and showed him how to do it. And then he replicated it safely. So this is built into both somatic medicine and psychotherapy and all has its source in receiving, seeking and receiving big dreams and visions from spiritual sources that are specifically built into the cosmos for our healing. Wonderful. It seems like we lost something so vital and important by pushing the gods out, <laughs> I think, in, in many, many ways. And what I want to ask is, in this experience with the incubation, a god or goddess can present themselves and give healing, but isn't it also the case that there is often another component where the person seeking healing has to sort of embody the healing teaching through ritual. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing that in. Ritual is very important, and all of our spiritual traditions teach it. We don't recognize it today, but going to a doctor or going to a, a counselor is actually a ritual, mm. but it's a ritual without the sacred frame. We're going to the same person in the same place at the same time for a very specific focused need for health and healing. That's part of what a ritual is. Ritual is, of course, you and I know and practice ritual is much bigger than that. Ritual is an orchestrated series of events that carry us through a transformational process. And it's being in the ritual in the process that brings about our changes. So, and in this 
Escapian tradition, yeah, it's full of ritual. And in my pilgrimages to Greece, we do the dream incubations, but well, I'll be leading a 10-day pilgrimage for veterans next month. Mm -hmm. So we will spend the first seven or eight days visiting on pilgrimage, visiting warrior sites, studying philosophy, walking where Socrates and Plato really hung out, mm -hmm. absorbing those energies into our bodies, talking about what they meant to us, talking about our dreams every single day as we're working toward the incubation. And then the incubation is at a long, complex ritual where we prepare for it. People spend the entire, we've been in preparation for 10 days now, but the entire day before incubation is a day of silence for meditation and prayer and journaling, walks in the wilderness to get really connected to yourself and to, to, to great mother nature. And then we set up altars. We recite ancient prayer and poetry. We, the group is supporting the incubant so that we're not alone. Like again, on a, like on a vision quest, there's a tribe supporting you and praying for you all the time when you're up on the mountain alone. Same thing, we're in dream incubation. And so the whole thing is framed as a ritual with the incubation process being the centerpiece. Like, okay, now you're on the mountaintop and this is your time to encounter spirits and the entire process has guided you there so you're as open the portals are as open as wide as we can get them together and people don't just have the vision and the dream but they really really embody it so these are okay one quick example a woman who came on a, a recent pilgrimage who was in a very unsatisfying troubled marriage and in her incubation, her incubation, it was not one of Asclepius animal spirits, a wolf came to her. But the wolf came and its fangs were revealed and it was dripping saliva and it was really angry and it wasn't angry at, at her. The wolf was, and it was in her heart chakra. So she was feeling it in here and she was feeling all of the anger that she had been denying that she has to try to adapt to her frustrations in her marriage. But it was really embodied. So it wasn't a symbol in, just in her mind, but it was a physiological experience that was so embodied that when she woke up and she I'm a wolf, I feel the fur, I'm snarling, give me some meat. And she was a vegetarian, give me some meat, give me some meat, I need meat. But it stayed with her. She accepted the wolf as one of her spirit animals. She began, she really embodied it. She began modeling it. She, when she couldn't, when she was afraid, the human part of her was afraid to express herself. She'd meditate and feel the wolf in her and then let it out. And, um, and she's been studying wolves. And since then, she's actually found another a shamanic teacher. And she's on the, the in this case, she's on a South American shamanic medicine path mm. but from i don't have a path i'm a refugee from a, a cult church and i'm in an unhappy marriage to i'm transformed i have a wolf spirit i've found my strength i have a spiritual path that i'm really working hard and i've achieved a full life transformation so that's an example of how it works and you're right it has to be ritualized and it has to be embodied and 
we, what psychology calls transference, it isn't the therapist or the counselor or the doctor that's doing the healing or getting the transference. The ritual enables the transference to the spiritual world. It's God or the gods and goddesses or the wolf spirit that is healing me that I have my primary connection to. And the therapist is only the facilitator of the ritual that got me to the real spiritual connection I need. That's so powerful. And, you know, I, I wrote down a quote. This is from the book, The Practice of Dream Healing, that I think speaks to all of what you were just saying. And the quote is, in order for us to restore vitality to psychological life, to reclaim and heal our souls, we must not only think, but experience as well. In order to experience transpersonal energy, we must personify and imagine, for we can only experience God through personification. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank for sure. You. And one of Let the just, things... Uh, oh, yes, please. I want a, a quick comment about that. Yeah. That's another reason the Greek mythology is so great. Because it's not that when I look at a statue, I believe that statue is a god. Mm -hmm. No, that's a personification of divine energies. And the gods and goddesses are the meeting point. Mm -hmm. They're just personifications of divine energy that we've given humanoid form to in order to personify so we can have a personal relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the god and human meet in yeah. the pagan practices. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I have gods all over my house and I have little altars and yeah. I've got Hermes and Pan and Zeus and so yeah, on and so do. forth. Me too. Hermes is looking at me yeah. as we talk. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I, I know we're starting to run out of time, but I, along these lines of sort of embodying things, one of the practices that you write about in the new book, Soul Medicine, that I think is relevant to this is sacred theater, because that seems like it's another way of embodying these energies. And I was wondering if you could say a few words about this practice of sacred theater. Sure. Thank you for this question as well. Theaters, we know it today also grew out of the, tr the Greek tradition and sacred theater. I'll take us on two steps. First of all, ancient Greek tragedy grew originally out of, you and I know this, we want to share it with everybody, grew it out of the spring rebirth rituals to the god Dionysus. Dionysus comes back in the spring when the grapevines start to sprout again. So every spring around April in ancient Greece, there were joyous energetic staged rituals that everybody participated in to honor Dionysus and that rebirth. And there was music and dance and choral odes. And that's where the original Greek chorus came from. As culture evolved, the three famous tragedians that we know of and study and who gave us tragedy, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, when they came along in the 400s and 300s BC, they were all warriors. They're all combat veterans. Aeschylus was at Marathon resisting the Persians. His brother was killed there. Sophocles and Euripides were both elected generals in the Athenian army. They were around, they really knew the experience. Well, they all became playwrights and they all took the original Dionysian spring rebirth rituals and they added 
the theatrical elements to it that we know of. So the chorus was there. They added a character, then a couple of characters, and then they began staging the traditional myths in exquisite poetry. Dionysus as a god is a god of transformation. He's not only the god of wine that we identify with, but why he uses wine is because he does put us in altered states of consciousness in order to achieve inner transformation. He's the God that takes us apart and puts us back together in new forms. And he balances Apollo, who's reason and truth revealed through readers and oracles. For Dionysus, it's truth revealed through altered states of consciousness and immersion in myth. So sacred theater, well, in, in Greece, not only the playwrights were combat veterans, but everybody was. Mm-hmm. So we're in an audience with 10,000 people and every man in the audience has been in, in the military in, and, the, and most of the, tra- the theater, most of the tragic theater we had demonstrates partially or fully the impact of war and violence and demonstrating trauma. So 10,000 people in the theater, everybody has been through the war experience and it is a massive communal ritual to achieve catharsis, the cleansing of our negative emotions. So theater performances were very emotional. People saw themselves in their own stories portrayed on the theater, on, on the stage. We go from a personal identification. This is my story and I'm suffering privately to this is everybody's story and we all experience it together and we are shown we we step from our suffering and pathology into mythology the healing is the movement from pathology to mythology from suffering into elevated consciousness and the story that carries our story along with everybody else's and we realize This is the human story and we're all sharing it rather than this is my individual breakdown and something's wrong with me. So sacred theater transforms all of our ailments into to give us catharsis and give us community and transform our consciousness such that we realize our story is a myth. It's our personal version of the universal myths that shape all of our lives and are built into the universe. Wow. Oh, thank you for explaining that. I know that we are out of time, but I was wondering if I can ask you one final question. Sure. Okay. So your work is based on pilgrimage in many ways. And I was just wondering, is there something that people can do who perhaps they can't afford to go on a pilgrimage? Oh, yes. um, how can people work with this material to achieve the same kind of healing? That's a great question. And thank you for offering that for our friends out there who might not be able to go on a pilgrimage or afford it. So I'm going to share that just last weekend, this past weekend, I did a two-day dream incubation workshop actually on Zoom. Wow. And it worked. Mm. I I had 20 people from all over the, this our country and several from overseas. So for the first day, we studied these practices. I'm answering your question, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe <laughs> you. 
Thank you. Our friends, be patient for a few minutes. We study the practices. We told the stories. We am drenched in the imagery and the stories here. We don't have, it's wonderful to go to Greece or another country, but we don't have to. We can drench ourselves in the arts and imagery and stories that come from this tradition or others right here, you know, in our privacy, in our study, in our bedroom. And we can incubate ourselves. So this past weekend, 20 people did self-incubation. We had a heavy day of teaching and ritual Saturday. I then asked, invited everybody, set up an altar. If you don't have an altar, set an altar up. Make sure you have a private space for sleeping tonight even if you have family may get a, a place of solitude fast for the rest of the day no drugs no alcohol no food do as complete a fast as you can think about these stories think about and really pray hard concentrate hard on what your own healing needs are and when you're ready and write and keep a journal next to you and maybe art supplies too and write down your intentions for what you're seeking and even tear out a piece of paper from your journal and write your intention and put it under your pillow and then go to sleep or lay in bed and don't do anything else no news nothing that stresses no violence from the world really peaceful and calm and quiet and just stay there until you have a dream or a vision or active imagination fantasies that bring some of the answer that you're looking for. So we can incubate ourselves. I do. I incubated myself the night before the workshop in preparation. And then the night of the workshop when my attendees were incubating as well. And each night I actually had half of the dream the first night and half the second, which was really important and revelatory to me because the first time was the good spirit that was helping me. And then the second night was, don't forget the shadow of this spirit because mm. that's here too. And you got to deal with both. My 20, every 19 of the 20 people came out back with big dreams. Mm. The, the one person who didn't dream instead was up all night long doing a piece of artwork. And she brought that. And she came with a beautiful painting that she had done of the goddess of hell, Hygieia, Hygieia. Mm. So she was channeling Hygieia. She didn't need to go to sleep. She used her artistic talents. But people came with dreams. I'm still hearing from people saying, I'm so awakened and interested and confused by the dream I had that I really have to work on this for a while. And maybe we can talk about it. Great. One young marine who was in afghanistan for us god help us god help him scouts honor he came back the next day absolutely joyous because he slept nine hours straight this is a guy with severe combat induced insomnia who usually sleeps a few hours a night nine hours straight and five dreams that he remembered that are all transformational for him so that's how you do it. You can incubate yourself, create a ritual, create your safe space, create your sacred bedchamber, and gently but respectfully afflict yourself and minimize all intrusion and turn yourself over to the, the gods and goddesses of sleep and dreams and wait. Mm -hmm.
Wow. Wow. Thank you for all of that. So again, I know we're out of time, but let me ask you, I know you said you've got a retreat coming up pretty soon in a couple of weeks. What else are you working on? What else do you have coming up? Hmm. Uh, thanks for asking that too. Lucky me, my group will join me in Greece at the end of March, but I'm leaving in about 10 days because hmm. I have a next book on Greece that I'm writing now. It's a it's about half or two thirds done. So I'm going to do more research and writing in Greece. So that's next. I'm leading a pilgrimage to Greece in March that's full and for warriors, but I'll be leading another one in the fall. So if anybody's might be interested and want to contact me, that's open and it will be a dream healing pilgrimage, not specifically for warriors, but for anybody. And in my work in war trauma healing, not only do I continue to work with our young veterans, but honored to share with you that I'm actually working by Zoom with people in Ukraine and in Moscow, Wow, working with them now as the horrible war is going on now to help them learn how to reduce and heal from war trauma, Ethan, as it's happening. Don't wait 20 years till everybody's got PTSD and chronic <laughs> condition but we can really introduce healing now and even help you try to reduce the trauma that's inevitable in the combat zone. So all the above. Okay, wonderful. And so where is the best place for people to contact you? Do you have a website? Yeah, thanks. I've got two websites. Okay. So one is just my name, edwardtick.com. And that's uh, my author's website. So all of mm -hmm. my books and publications, as well as events are there. And then for my full practice, it's my website is mentorthesoul.guide. Mentor the soul is one word. Mentorthesoul.guide. Guide. Okay, wonderful. So either of those will get to me. Okay, well, I will put links for both of those in the show notes in the video description, as well as links for your latest book, Soul Medicine. Terrific, thank you so right. much. Well, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, you're very welcome, Nick. And so did I. Thank you for all the good spiritual wisdom you're helping bring into the world and mm -hmm. for, for being compatible mm -hmm. and in tune with this work uh, as we are yeah. and you and your other guests are as well. So yeah. that's what you're doing too. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. <laughs> And that's a wrap on episode 74 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, then please consider becoming a patron. I spend quite a bit of time on each podcast episode and have a lot of plans for growing the YouTube channel, but I really can't do that without some additional financial support. Right now, this is a labor of love, and I hope that if you find any value in it, that you can help me in continuing this work. There are currently four levels of Patreon membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout-outs to members, a members-only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for what I've been calling Cocktail Apocalypse, Happy Hour at the End of the World, the first of which will re be recorded on Saturday, March 25th. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be tremendously grateful for any support you can provide. 
Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. As I mentioned before, you know, I often kid that I'm here in Southern California doing missionary work in regards to religion and spirituality and ecology, psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, then please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review and please consider sharing the video. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be at peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.